0: semester kicks off. I know they're super excited about that. Or at least I think they are. Maybe I should pray over that too. But uh, grateful that uh, that they are starting to trickle back in. We exist uh, to bring the Lord to that place and really to help just share the Lord to that place. He's doing some incredible things on that campus and we're excited to partner with him in that. A couple of exciting things going on. Hopefully you saw those in uh, the announcement video. You can also grab one of the bulletins in the back or follow us online. We've got some new classes at 930. Hope you can join us for those classes. Today we have our rooted class. So if you are joining us for the first First time in a while, uh, maybe the last couple of weeks, even just today, over the last few months, uh, we'd love to have you. We'll provide lunch, just answer any questions you have, introduce you to our staff, help you get more connected here, uh, and then there's some other great things happening as well. So again, go online. I was given a card this morning uh, for Harry Glenn Harrison. His birthday is coming up. I believe it's his 90th birthday, uh, so glenda has got all the information on that party. I'll have this in the back table as well, uh, but he's still partying at 90. I love that. Hope you can be, That can be said of me as well. I'm 41 and I can barely have a party right now without having to go to bed at 8 o'clock, right? 8 or 9, I'm exhausted. But uh, let's continue our series, Simply 7. Last week we started this new series. It's kind of a, a, this is our tagline for it, a biblical worldview in seven words. A biblical worldview in seven words. If you uh, didn't hear that message, if you weren't with us last week for that, you can go online and check that out. Jackson has been working super hard to get our podcast uh, kind of up to date and back running, so go ahead and and, uh, check that out. It should be easy to find. And like I said, we have new bulletins this morning. You have a summary from last week's message in that bulletin as well as a section for sermon notes in there. So we've got some at the back tables. Uh, I wouldn't be upset if you went back there and grabbed some up if you needed it today. Uh, But make sure you grab those in the weeks to come as that's going to really help us kind of be on the same page. Here's what we talked about last week though, if you weren't with us. uh, It really comes down to this, that a lot of things in life, for one reason or another, kind of end up being rather complicated and rather confusing. It can be toothpaste options at the grocery store to investment options with your banker or whatnot, but things are confusing and we don't want that to be the case, right? Because we like for things to be simple and easy and straightforward. But a lot of things in life can make us feel rather overwhelmed and in over our head. And what happens with most things in life can actually happen with our faith. What we claim to be true about Christ can become overly complicated and somewhat confusing. Right, you throw in some evolution talk or end times, what you read online, what your philosophy professor said back in college. You throw it all together, mix it around, and there's your faith. But as you describe it, as you share it, it's confusing to people. They're not exactly sure what you're talking about. And something that's designed to draw people close to the Lord actually pushes them away from the Lord because it's so confusing. And that's what we're going to try to remedy in this series. Is like Like Jesus, we're going to try to say a whole lot without saying a whole lot. Like Jesus, we're going to try to keep things simple, straightforward, so that people are drawn to it, so that they want more of it. And so we've chosen seven words, seven words that I believe uh, summarize this entire story as well as your entire story, anyone's entire story for that matter, seven words that I think help keep the biblical narrative, the biblical worldview super simple. Seven doesn't sound like a lot, but as we talked about last week in that one phrase, through seven words, man, you can ask for or say or demand a lot of things. And seven is this number in Hebrew culture that describes and depicts completion and wholeness. So in seven words, we're hoping to explain to you what Jesus is really all about. Last week it was fun talking about that first word, and today I'm excited to jump into word number two. Uh, Let me start by by sharing an embarrassing moment with you. Uh, Years ago, I was pastoring a church up in Colorado, and it was the beginning of the year, similar to how it is right now, and I was just sharing my heart for the church. I was sharing who I thought the Lord was calling us to be for that year, who he was calling us to reach. I mean, I was getting into it. Spit was flying out my mouth, right? It was a big moment for me. And then I sat down. I kind of got off the stage and sat down next to a friend who almost always sat in the front row just to be a source of encouragement for me, and he patted me on the back, and he leaned in and he said, man, that that was great. There's just one problem. Your fly is down. Like, no, no, such an important moment. Anybody ever have something like that happen to them, right? This awkward moment, like, no, this couldn't just happen right now. Maybe you can relate to this. How many of you have ever unknowingly had really bad breath, right? You're just kind of going about your day, chumming it up with everybody, and then a good friend, or most likely your spouse, walks up, and they're like, um, honey, Did you eat a skunk for lunch? Because your breath reeks. Anybody ever have that happen? You're like, oh, no, who have I talked to? How many people have I talked to? I'm so sorry. Well, this morning, I'm going to be that friend. I'm going to be the one who comes up to you and kind of taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, excuse me, something's off, something's wrong, something stinks. And I wish it were, were just your breath. So last week, our series started with the word creator. That's our first word in the series. And don't worry, I had some people reach out and say, I didn't catch all seven words. You know why? I didn't give you all seven words. Last week, I just gave you one. The word is creator. We start there. And we start there because this is this foundational truth that in the beginning, God formed and fashioned everything that we see as well as everything that we cannot. The world is here not because of some giant cosmic accident not because random cells positively mutated, you know, mutated over the course of billions and billions of years. The earth is here because there is a God, a creator God, a designer, a painter, a sculptor if you will, who made it. The Bible says that creation, all the earth was just like this canvas. Remember the phrase, the Hebrew phrase, tohu va bohu. It was void, it was empty, it was blank, it was nothingness to it. And this doesn't become something beautiful by chance, by accident. It takes a creator, it takes a painter, a sculptor, right? An artisan. And that's who God is. He is our artisan. He came in and he took that which was tohu bohu and he made it something beautiful. And after God put the finishing touches on his creation, scripture says that he kind of put his hands behind his back and kicked his feet up and just said, Oh, that is good. That is so good. And if you are a musician or an artist, you know that feeling, do you not? You've been working on a project for months and months and months, like writing a song or working on a poem or, or painting something, and it just isn't what you want it to be. It's, it's not quite complete yet. And other people are probably telling you, man, that sounds great. Or that looks awesome. But you as the artisan, you know, no, it's not there yet. And so you'll work on it, and you'll work on it, and you'll tinker, and you'll tinker. You'll just keep messing around with it until it's good in your eyes. So the last couple of weeks I've been doing a little painting myself. This is a little something I made. You can't see it in the back, which is probably good. Don't get too close, it's not that good. But I know this comes as a surprise to you that I have this skill. I'm not just a pretty face, okay? I'm not even that, but I tinkered with this all week. And and Becca would tell me, you know, as she would see me painting it in the in the living room there, like, hey, it looks great. I just knew it wasn't, it wasn't right yet. And so I just would kept working. I brushed my teeth, looking at it, right? Eating my cereal, putting a little more mark on it. But then there came a point as the creator of it, as the artisan, where it was so good. It was exactly what I wanted it to be. That's how it is for the Lord. That's how it is with this entire world. God sat back and then he, he worked so hard on it. And then on the seventh day, he's like, man, that is so good. That's exactly what I want. It's not good enough. It's not good for now. That is as good as it is. Gets. So that's the end of Genesis chapter 2. The canvas of creation, if you will. It went from nothing to something incredible, something beautiful. Why? By chance? By accident? Because monkeys are highly developed and turned into humans? No, it's here because God wanted it to be here. It's here because there's a creator who made it. And I want you to try to imagine this world right here. I want you to try to imagine this beautiful creation. End of Genesis chapter 2. A world without sickness or decay. A world without racism or prejudice. There's no storms, right? There's no hurt. There's no angst, anger, apathy. None of those things. Can you imagine a world where none of those things are present? A perfect world. Anybody, can you imagine that? No. We can't. Why? Because it's the opposite of what our world is like. We can't imagine a world like that because our world is nothing like that. And today we're going to figure out why that happened. Like what happened there? what the cause of that was. See, something happens, Genesis chapter 2, it's beautiful and it's good, and then something happens, Genesis chapter 3, and it's contaminated. Something happens to this beautiful creation, this beautiful canvas. And So we're going to talk about that today together. The word, our second word, if you're kind of keeping notes here, is curse. Curse is going to be this word that we're going to use that summarizes the contamination and the pollution, if you will, that falls into this beautiful creation. It's in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let's read that together. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So here in Genesis 3, we learn why pain and problems and difficult people are a part of our planet, a perpetual part of our planet. Let's look through this text together. I want to go verse by verse and kind of explain what happened here. It begins with this. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the other wild animals. And he said to the woman, there was a kindergarten teacher one time who was reading the story of the three little pigs to her class. And she came to that part where the first little pig is buying some hay. And pardon me, sir, the little piggy says to the farmer, may I purchase some hay from my house? And so the teacher asked the class, and do you know what the farmer said? A little boy raised his hand and said, I know, I know. Holy smokes, that pig can talk. <laughs> yes, you're right. That's exactly what he probably said, because that is crazy town. And a talking serpent was probably crazy town for Eve as well. This probably caught her off guard a tad bit. Probably a little strange. Strange. But to the original audience, there is an incredible amount of meaning and symbolism associated and connected to this particular character. See, in the ancient world, the serpent is very important. It's a symbol of pagan power and worldly wisdom. Sometimes the serpent is used to depict magic or mystical practices. And so the author of Genesis is trying to say here that in this beautiful creation... Something is there. Something evil and pagan and worldly has kind of crept in, if you will. There's a character in this story that we hadn't really heard about before. It's the serpent. And the text tells us the serpent was more crafty than all the other animals. And this is not a compliment to the serpent. Like, oh, you're crafty. No, crafty means that he is cunning, meaning he's a trickster, a cheat. He's up to no good. And we know this is true because unlike the original audience, we have the New Testament. And who do we know the serpent to be? It's Satan, right? This is not just some random guy that came into the party unannounced. This is Satan. This is the epitome of evil. This is the manifestation of evil in Satan himself. And he has manifested himself in the form of this serpent. And he stands there now in direct opposition to God. And he says to the woman, after he slithers up to her, did God really say You must not eat any tree in the garden. Now to fully appreciate the question, you have to hear the sarcasm, the cynicism deep within it. It's as if someone is asking you this, are you really going to stay pure or stay a virgin before you get married? (laughs) That's that's not how the world works. Or are are you going to tell the truth even though you don't have to and it won't benefit you? In fact, it's actually going to get you in trouble. I, I would never do that. Or maybe something along the lines of, are you going to apologize for something that you barely had any part in? Really? Can you hear kind of the animosity in that question? It tells us a lot about the serpent's attitude as well as his agenda. Whenever you question somebody in kind of a critical or condescending way, you're up to something, aren't you? You want to prove something, you want to make your point, you want to make them feel like an idiot. You see, Satan isn't looking to learn the truth as if he's genuinely interested in what God has said. He wants to distort the truth so Eve will doubt what God said. So what did God say? Genesis 2.16 tells us, And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God uniquely creates man and woman in his own image to bear his likeness and he purposefully places them in this beautiful creation to care for it, to tend it, to have authority over it and he gives them one rule. There's one rule they can eat from any tree except for this one. Do not touch the tree of knowledge. Now we aren't sure why this tree was off limits. Some say it was a bad tree which I don't, I don't agree with that. Some say it was there to test Adam and Eve which I kind of agree with that. But I think this one tree comes down to two things, timing and trust. This tree is there as a measure of timing and trust, right? It's a good tree. There's knowledge, there's understanding, insight. Those are all good, godly things, but it boils down to timing and trust. Will this young couple believe that their creator has their best interest in mind? Will this young couple believe That the God who made them knows what's best for them. And will they wait to take something that he says, no, 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 you can't have that right now. Will they wait on him to give it to them if and when he feels it's appropriate? Or will they take matters into their own hands? Will they go and grab it because they want it? See the struggle that they're in? Will they trust that God knows best? Or will they think that they know best? Will they assume that they know best? So the serpent asks, did God say you can't eat from any tree? Wow, what kind of God would make a forest of trees and then put you there and until you can't eat from any of them? But God didn't say that, did he? That's not what the, what the Lord said at all. He said they are free to eat from every tree, any tree except the one. God has made ample provision for the young couple, but there is one tree alone that's off limits. It's the one prohibition, but it's not exhaustive. It's not all-encompassing, but that's what the enemy wants you to think. This is what Satan does. He takes the truth, little bits and pieces of it, and he twists it, and he distorts it so that you take what God has said and you go from loving what God has said and who God is to hating who God is and what he has said. I mean, think about how this has shifted. Think about all the ways that you could kind of flip this. Wait, God, you have given me every tree to eat except that one? Every tree? That's amazing. But then after the enemy gets his little, you know, his little voice in there, wait, 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 you've given me every tree to eat except that one? See how it's shifted now? They went from loving the good things that God had created for them, the way that God had created them. They went from loving that to hating wait, wait, you're holding out on me. You're holding me back, Lord. And the devil wants you to question everything God has said, and he wants you to question his very nature, his very character. Did God really say it's better to give your stuff away, better to give than receive, better to live off little and share with those who have nothing? No, 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 God didn't say that, right? No, God said he who has the most toys wins. Did God really say you can never have sex, like ever make you a physical sexual being and then tell you you can never enjoy it? Did God really say that? Did God really say you should actually forgive your abuser or your attacker because you're living in a prison of unforgiveness? Did God really say that? Does he know how bad they hurt you? And in this moment, Adam and Eve, as created beings, are asked if they trust their creator. Do they trust that the one who made them knows what's best for them? That was the million dollar question in the garden, and guess what? It's a million dollar question that you and I are asked every single day. Do you trust that the one who purposefully placed you on this planet? Do you trust that he knows what's best for you? Do you believe him? Do you take him at his word? Well, how does the woman respond? Verse 2 of chapter 3. We may eat fruit, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the one tree in the middle of the garden. Hey, good for you, Eve. You nailed it. And you must not touch it. Okay, I don't know if God ever said that, but women tend to exaggerate. Here's your proof. (laughs) Or you will die. Yes. That's the heart of it. The woman adds a little bit extra, but you know what? She's not wrong. Well, the serpent now at this point, he's done with the small talk, and he just goes in for the kill. You will not certainly die. You will more or less be enlightened. First, the serpent questions God's words, and now he's just flat out questioning God's goodness. God said, eat it and you will die. The serpent is now flipping that completely says, you will not die. You cannot have both. One is true or the other is true, but they cannot both be true. You will not die is what he says. God doesn't know what he's talking about. There aren't any negative consequences to disobeying him. God doesn't really mean what he says or says what he means. That's not how things really work. It's kind of what the enemy is saying here. And once that little seed was planted, that seed of doubt, The serpent just kind of slithers away and lets it germinate and grow on its own, because it will, and it almost always does. And that's what happens in Eve's story. Eve ultimately gives into this temptation. She's convinced that this is the better life, not the one that God made for her, but the one that she can make for herself. And then she convinces her husband to eat the fruit And then when God confronts them about this and says, Wait, wait, I I told you you could do anything you wanted except this one thing. And you did that one thing? When he confronts them, they start to play the blame game. They start to yell and and point at everybody else. Adam, God says, man, what happened? Just everything but that one tree and you're eating that one tree? Oh, the woman. The woman made me do it. Eve, what what happened? Like, I told you not to eat. You You could eat of anything you wanted except this one. Like, what in the world? The serpent. The serpent made me do it. See, everybody knew in this moment that something had gone wrong, terribly wrong. They could feel it, but everybody blamed somebody else for it. It's as if they were trying to talk themselves out of it, right? Out of the punishment that was coming. A friend this last week sent me a random list of the top excuses police officers hear uh, when they're giving a speeding ticket. The top ones are pretty lame, but there were some hilarious ones that didn't make the top 10, but I thought they were great. I might try it next time. I I never speed, but just in case I ever did. Um, Oh, I thought the sign I-95 meant that was the speed limit. That could work, right? I wasn't speeding. I just got my hair cut. makes me look fast. Or I had to get to McDonald's before the breakfast menu closed. Now that, I mean, come on, right? Like you need that egg McMuffin, you're going to do whatever it takes, right? You can try to talk your way out of a few things, maybe a speeding ticket. Adam and Eve couldn't talk their way out of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. There was no way around it. There are these horrific consequences to their disobedience and their selfishness, and it contaminated everything. As I mentioned before, we're going to summarize the contamination and the consequences with the single word, curse. It's the second word in our Simply 7. You see, as soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord, they came to believe that the Creator didn't know what He was talking about, that they knew better than Him. Everything became cursed. And Genesis 3 describes how that curse manifests itself. First was humanity now being cursed in their relationship with creation. This beautiful earth that had been created to them that was going to produce amazing fruits and vegetables that was going to be a blessing to them was now going to work against them. Creation was going to be difficult for them. So their relationship with the ground was cursed. Their relationship with one another became cursed as well. The relationship that was designed to have intimacy and harmony, right? this beautiful connection between Adam and Eve, well, that was now going to have animosity, distrust, and anger. And then, of course, the relationship between humanity and God became cursed. They could no longer live in the perfect garden because they were no longer perfect. And they could no longer have uninterrupted fellowship with a perfect God for that very same reason. So they were cursed with the ground, they were cursed with each other, and they were cursed with the Lord. Everything became cursed. You see, the consequences of selfishness, the fallout from short-sightedness, and the cost of listening to the serpent is that it wrecks what God has made I'm going to ask my oldest daughter, Bailey, to come up just for a second and do something that is going to pain my heart. Um, I've got some some black paint there, Bailey. I'm going to ask Bailey to take this good creation and do a little something-something to it that's going to wreck it. Don't get it on your shirt, please, because mom has to wash that. After I did this in the first service, someone said, oh, you're just going to wipe it off? Do it again in the second service? No, you don't wipe this off, people. Thank you. Don't applaud that. Don't applaud her bringing the curse on my good creation. But you see, you just don't wipe off the curse, do you? But this is what happens in life. God takes that which is tohu bohu, and then he makes something beautiful out of it and then we bring the curse onto it. Because yes, we can blame Adam and Eve for making that fateful decision way back in the garden, but had I been in their shoes, I would have made the same decision. And they were the first ones down this road, but guess what? I follow them down that road too. God, will you trust, or Thomas, will you trust what God has said? Will you trust that your creator knows what's best for you? Or will you take matters into your own hands and do what you think is best? You and I have to answer that question every single day. And more often than not, we answer what we know best. I want what I want. God doesn't know what he's talking about. That's not how the world works anymore. And so we do this, and we bring a curse on the creation. Let me just just speak for a second. Some of us are, are in this place right now. And if you're not, you're you're tempted to go into this place. But you don't think it's going to work out like this. Go ahead and cheat on your wife. And it'll look like this. Go ahead and drink yourself into oblivion every single afternoon. And it'll look just like this. Go ahead and max out every single credit card and live like you're keeping up with the Joneses. And it'll look like this. You don't know what's best. You didn't make yourself You didn't create yourself. You don't know what's best. You have to trust the Lord. Because otherwise life ends up looking like this, doesn't it? And some of us know what this feels like. Man, we just take that pain and just put it all over ourselves. We know this feeling. Because this is what sin always does. This is what the curse always looks like. What the curse always, always feels like. Again, I wish we could just talk about the curse like in hypotheticals. Oh, the curse. Yeah, the curse. Somebody's dealing with the curse. We're all dealing with the curse. Why do you think earth is filled with so many disasters? Why do you think rain pours nonstop in certain places and there's not a drip in other places? Why do you think your marriage is falling apart? Why do people cheat? Why is life filled with so many vices and addictions? Why do you feel like you're always fighting an uphill battle or you feel like you're not worth it or never going to measure up? Why do you think bugs bite or terrorists bomb buildings? Why? Because of the curse. It's because everything is cursed. It was tohu bohu. It was nothing and void and empty. Then it was beautiful and perfect. And the curse came. And the curse wrecked it, destroyed it. Isaiah 53.6 says it pretty, pretty clearly. All of us, like sheep, we've all strayed away. We've all left God's paths to follow our own. Yeah, Adam and Eve were the first ones down the path, but I followed right behind them. And I almost followed behind them every single day. And this is where that biblical worldview kind of comes into play. If I were to ask you, is humanity generally good, like naturally good, and just kind of does evil things on occasion? Or is humanity bad and does good things on occasion? How would you answer? Because a biblical worldview would say, well, I hate to admit it because I'm part of it, but we're bad. My bent is towards this every single time. You leave me alone and it will be this. You leave me to my own vices and I will wreck the good thing that God has given me. Because humanity is bent towards evil. And when we do good things, I think it surprises the Lord. Like, whoa, that was a good thing. Where did that come from? We would normally answer that question by saying, no, humanity's good. Why would we say that? Because I I want to think that I'm good. And if I'm not, then what are the consequences of that? What's the fallout going to be of that? See, we fool ourselves when we think that sin is just this list of bad behaviors you're supposed to stay away from. If I had a little soapbox, I'd pop on it just for a second. Here we go. There's an old saying out there that says, Sin is this, don't drink or smoke or chew and definitely don't date any girls who do. Ever hear that before? I think Las Cruces probably created that saying, Right? So sin is just the stuff I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't, 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 don't. Sin is so much bigger than that. Sin is this deep-seated lie that lives deep in me that I know better than God. That he's not in charge, I'm in charge. Sin is this bent that I have to deny the truth, to twist the truth for my own personal gain. It's this thing that makes me question everything God does and justify everything that I do. Sin is this dynamic. It causes me to use, abuse, and discard every good thing that God has given me. One pastor describes like this, sin is about substitution. I take God's words and I substitute them for the enemy's words. You will die. No, you won't die. Substitution. It's a substitution where I can live for the life or live in the life that God created for me or I can try to manufacture one on myself and buy another product. It's a substitution. I can wait on God's timing and he will give me the things that he thinks I need and deserve when I I need and deserve them or I wait or I go get them on my own And, and I scrap and I fight in order to have them when the timing isn't right. You see, it's one or the other. You can't have it both ways and so it's a substitution and we've all made the substitution. Every single one of us from the prostitute to the pastor. We all do this to God's creation, don't we? We all do this. We're all so guilty of it. We do it more often than we'd like to admit. And so I'm going to challenge you this morning here for a a few minutes. And uh, if you didn't grab one of the bulletins on your way in, be sure to do that during communion or on your way out. But we have some prayer cards in those bulletins because I don't want the curse to remain out there. Because if the curse remains kind of out there, hypothetical, theoretical, then we don't get to deal with it. We don't get to figure out how to solve that problem. So let's talk about the curse just for a second. Would you honor us as a staff by writing down on that prayer card how the curse is manifesting itself in your life? What does the curse look like for you right now? What is this? What is this for you? Is it physical? Is your body broken or twisted or tainted because of the ways you've used and abused it? Is it relational? Are you estranged from someone that you love or who loves you because of the poor choices that you made? Is it spiritual? We're like, I don't even know if God exists. And if he does, he definitely doesn't love me. You don't even know what I did. And if he did, he would never want to talk to me again, right? What is the curse for you? What is this? Because that is true. If I had the time, I'd go and I'd put black paint all over every single one of you. But how about you self-select and you choose to write out what that black paint is for you? Take just a few seconds and, and think about the curse in your own life. Is it an addiction? Is it angry? Angry spirit? Is it apathy towards things? Are you uncaring, unforgiving, unmerciful, ungrateful? What is the curse in your spirit? Take just a second, write those out. If you don't have a card, be thinking about what that might be. as you're thinking about how the curse has come and just wrecked things for you I want to leave you with this idea I made this painting this past week I made it knowing full well my daughter would wreck it (laughs) and I was mad at her all week for it I just knew it I knew it was coming but you see you see what's going on there though I made it knowing my child would wreck it Didn't catch me off guard? Didn't surprise me? What? Bailey, how dare you? I made it knowing she would wreck it. Is that not true for God with us? He made it all knowing that we would wreck it all. But he still made it. Why? Why would he do that? Well, there must be a plan for it. There must be a way to fix it. But now I'm getting ahead of myself and you got to come back next week. Let's pray. God, you are an incredible creator. You have taken that which is nothing and void and blank and empty and made it something so beautiful. And we see that beauty, Lord, glimpses of it in the sunrise and sunset, the laugh of a child or the face of a newborn baby. We see it in lovers' eyes when they're making promises on their wedding day, God, We see it in a chocolate lava cake at the restaurant. God, we just see goodness all over. It's all from you. You made it all. Every single thing exists because of you. Nothing that exists is is here by accident. It's all because of you and through Christ. And God, we just come before you this morning just apologetic, repentant for the ways that we've wrecked it. We've gone against your design. We've gone against your plans, your will, your commands, and we've just made a mess of things, God. Our homes are kind of messy and our marriages are messy and our finances are probably messy. Our spirit is messy, God. It's just all, it's all tainted. It's all twisted up. It's all cursed. And so would you come, God, and rescue us. Rescue us from ourselves and rescue us from the curse. And we're grateful now for Christ because he is the answer. He is the one who will help us to redeem, to remake all that has been broken and trashed. We thank you that you never gave up on us, God. That you didn't throw us out when you could have. That you didn't turn your back when we wrecked your beautiful painting. But instead, you you came in closer. You came in and you said, I can fix that. Help us to cling to you now, especially those of us who are living right in the middle of that curse, whose lives just feel like this little painting. Help us to just lean into you, knowing that you love us and you have a plan for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're gonna to come to the table now where we just get to celebrate Jesus and because Jesus is the, the answer to this. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But we celebrate Christ every week through communion, little piece of bread representing his body broken for us, little cup of juice representing his blood poured out. And it's Jesus. Jesus is the one that somehow reverses the curse. Can't wait to share with you exactly how he does that in the, in the weeks to come. But for now, let's go to the table. There's some down front as well as in the back. You can spend some time alone friends, family, your ministry group. If you'd like to come talk to me, I'll be up front. Let's go to the table now and just thank Jesus for helping us overcome the consequences of the curse.